calm. Nothing personal. Word of the day, April 2nd, 2021 is calm. As in everybody calm down. Just take a minute and recognize that yesterday was opening day in Major League Baseball. One game of 162. Of course, I think that opening day means more than any other game of the year. And that, of course, is the silliest, most irrelevant thought that an executive can have. But every single executive and every single fan thinks the same thing. You work your way up to opening day, starting with the day you're eliminated, including even if it's in game 100 of the previous season, you start thinking about opening day of the next season, whether it's the day you lose the World Series, the Tampa Rays started preparing for yesterday's game right after they pulled Blake Snell in game six of the World Series. The Dodgers started thinking about repeating the minute Justin Turner got off the field at the end of last year's World Series. Everyone prepares and then it comes and it's just one game. But a lot of stuff happened yesterday that was very telling to me and may be indicative of what this season holds. No, I'm just kidding. It has nothing to do with it. Not one result has anything to do with any results that will take place during the course of the entire season. Now, in a 60-game season last year, we used to say, remember, if you win one game, that's like a three-game winning streak. It's like sweeping a series. Well, we're back to 162, COVID or no COVID. Nationals didn't get to open yesterday because of COVID, so they may only play 159 games. Nope, they're playing 162. They just have fewer days to do it. So a couple observations that I want to tell you about who needs to stay calm and why. If you're the Houston Astros, just stay calm. You thought, did you? I wonder if they did. I was thinking about if I'm president of the Astros and I sit down with them pre-opening pre day and prepare them to play in front of fans. Wasn't it strange seeing fans? It looked like uh, games with... Uh, <laughs> I was going to say it looked like Marlins games. But I'm not trying to... That would be me saying how bad I was at having fans come to games. But it did. But there's a ton of teams that it looks like uh, yesterday because it was only 10% capacity or 20% capacity. So there were fans in different places around different ballparks. So it didn't look like a regular opening day in terms of crowds. But it certainly looked really amazing to have fans back in the stands. It's something that baseball needs. It's something that fans need. It's something that players need. And the Astros were thinking, does anyone remember the garbage can situation? Because Am I the only one who believes that that was 20 years ago? Like, there's no players left on the Astros that had anything to do with sign stealing. There's no way Altuve isn't retired yet, right? Or Correa? Can't be. Well, in fact, fans do remember. They were playing the Oakland A's, and it was quite something. The boos were loud, even though the attendance in Oakland was small, because that's how it goes even on a regular day. And the Astro players, they won the game. The Astro players were looking at each other, and I could sense while watching that game, is that they were good. It didn't matter. And there's nothing more frustrating to a fan base when you are booing the opposing team, and you know that the opposing team doesn't care at all. I spent my childhood booing the Chicago Bulls, booing the Detroit Pistons, 
booing the Celtics, the Sixers, anyone who was better than the Knicks, anyone who got in the way of the Knicks trying to win a title, booing the Rockets in 1994. And I always wanted to believe that my boos mattered. And then I got into management and I started and I got to meet players and spent so long talking to players about it. They don't care. It doesn't impact one at bat. It doesn't impact one shot, one free throw. Remember when you're watching basketball and you give these, uh, they give away, I just thought of this Coke, it's pretty funny. They give away these sticks that people wave behind the free throw line back when there was full capacity in fans and NBA games. And they're booing and they're trying to distract players from shooting free throws. And they're holding up signs behind the, uh, behind the end zone. The Heat would give away all these placards to put up when opposing teams were shooting free throws. It turns out that players actually not only don't see it, but they actually don't care about it. They were called uh, thunder sticks. And so everyone's banging on thunder sticks and booing so loudly. And then I'd go into the clubhouse after the game and say, wow, man, those fans were on us. And the players would say, what? <laughs> they didn't even hear it. They didn't even care about it. So the capacity for all these games was over 10%. So we're getting back to normalcy. We're getting vaccinated. We got that way to see taken care of from February 11th, 2021, that every MLB team would have over 10% capacity because every MLB, MLB team is going to meet with every local municipality and figure out the best way to get the most people to pay the most money, figuring out how to change the seating charts, where to sit people, where to do pods. I don't know if you heard the Lebetard local hour yesterday, Coca, but Mike Ryan was talking about he's a season ticket holder to enter Miami which is the new soccer team in Miami with MLS and his seats were moved. He wasn't really told and he wasn't treated exactly perfectly, but then he said something on Twitter so that he was treated well. And I was thinking during the show, but we didn't get to talk about it is that it's really hard when you are figuring out where to sit people. If you have a lot of season ticket holders, but you have to sit people with distance, you have to create pods. It's like putting a jigsaw puzzle together and you could see at the ballparks yesterday during opening day that how teams had done it. And the only thing that I would do differently than some of the teams did is I would have had more people where cameras were. One thing we did uh, both at Pro Player and at Marlins Park is that we would know exactly the angle of the first base camera, the third base camera, the center field camera, and we would make sure that we would stuff people in those areas to give the illusion that there were more people at the ballpark because it would make our sponsors happy. It would make fans feel like, oh, there's something going on. It's like going to a restaurant that's roped off and you think it's exclusive and they tell you there's a half hour wait. Have you ever had this? And then you go into the restaurant and there's 10 empty tables and you're trying to figure out what the hell's going on or you're waiting to go into a nightclub. I'm talking pre-COVID, of course, waiting to go into a nightclub and you're waiting and then you go in and you say, what's everyone waiting for? The illusion of capacity issues is one of the illusions that everyone tries to do. And I didn't think many of the teams did a perfect job of that. I guess maybe COVID safety trumped camera angles, but it certainly wouldn't have for me. Another thing that happened yesterday that I need to mention because baseball should be ashamed of itself, both the owners and the players, universal DH was not a thing. So that's a way to see that I lost on December 8th, 2020. I was positive. I said to you, there will be universal DH, but there wasn't yesterday pitchers hit. So I lost that way to see. I don't know if it's winning or losing. I keep we got to come up with a better word, Coca. What's a better word for winning or losing? It's just being prescient or not being prescient. Maybe that's the word. So I was not prescient. 
because there is no universal DH. So I'm watching the Rays and the Marlins. I love opening day because I get to watch games, although I love day two just the same. So I'm watching, and Tyler Glasnow, remember him, he's now the ace of the Rays. He was the opening day pitcher. As you remember, Charlie Morton, uh, the Rays pitcher from the World Series last year, was traded to the Atlanta Braves. Strike that. His option wasn't picked up, and he was signed as a free agent by the Braves. No correction needed, Coca. So Tyler Glasnow gets to the plate. Pitchers are hitting because there's no universal DH. But this is interesting because Tyler Glasnow plays in the American League. And the American League does have a DH, except when the American League plays in a National League park, which is interleague, half of interleague, the American League pitcher has to be in the batting order. So there's Glasnow going up to the plate, and his he goes up to the plate with a bat. I don't know if you know this, but it's a rule. You know what another rule is, Coca? It's a rule I tried to get changed because it's the silliest rule of all time. Let me set a scenario for you. Tie game, bases loaded, bottom of the ninth. The number eight hitter is at the plate with the pitcher on deck or a pinch hitter on deck. So in a tie game with the bases loaded and two outs, what can happen in that at-bat? Either a strikeout, in which case the inning is over and the next person doesn't bat, or a hit, or a walk, or a wild pitch, a steal of home. Something has to happen that the inning ends. But the rule is that you have to have someone on deck. I never understood that. I always wanted to have a bat boy stand on deck in those situations. Why make a player stand there and risk a Juan Encarnacion injury? There's a name from the past. He helped us win in a World Series in 2003. He got hit in the face with a foul ball while standing on deck, and it impacted his eyesight. He lost eyesight and an eye and never played again. So it's not altogether very safe to stand in the on-deck circle, and we would actually tell our players, please stand in a place where you're not going to get hit with a ball, which is the stupidest thing I could ever say, because there is no place where you're guaranteed to not get hit by a ball unless we build sheds in the on-deck circle, which would be dangerous to catchers or third basemen or first basemen or pitchers who are trying to field a little pop-up to foul ball territory. So why does baseball make someone stand in the on-deck circle? That's a rule I really don't understand. So Tyler Glasnow comes to the plate, and one of the rules is you have to actually bring a bat when you hit, when you're in the batter's box. I'm not sure why that's a rule. If you're not going to swing a bat and you're going to stand there and either get hit by a pitch or strike out or walk, uh, why exactly do you bring a bat to the plate? You don't have to. not going to use it. It's like bringing a raincoat on a sunny day when you're walking in a tunnel. What's the difference? Don't bring it. Tyler Glasnow didn't even... Swing the bat. Do you know why? Not because he was scared. Not because he stinks or is incapable. He was actually told, you're not swinging a bat. We are not going to have you have a Zach Gallon injury, the ace for the Diamondbacks, who's out with some sort of fracture or soreness in his arm. Can't remember what the injury was. We talked about nothing personal. Something happened. He got injured from swinging a bat. So Tyler Glasnow didn't hit. How do you think baseball felt watching that? I was thinking about the commissioner and about Theo Epstein who's trying to change the game, make the game better. Making the game better is pretty simple, right? You don't have pitchers hit. 
And if you do have pitchers hit, then have pitchers hit. But do you think the Rays were at a disadvantage as a road American League team having one hitter in their lineup who, by definition, wasn't going to hit? And you're saying to me, what's the difference? 30% of the at-bats end up in a, in a walk, a home run, or a strikeout. Well, you can't hit a home run if you don't swing the bat, so you still have the best chance of two of the things that are going to happen either way, so why bother swinging? That was a game, Rays-Marlins, that ended one nothing, and noticeable because there was so much offense yesterday. So people were saying, I guess the ball is not dead the way they said it was going to be dead one game doesn't mean a thing you could have scores of 14 to 10 like you did with the rangers and royals and it doesn't mean one thing about how the ball is going to play so tyler glass now doesn't hit and mlb and the union has to be looking in the mirror and saying we really screwed up what an embarrassment you darvish started for the padres and said i hope that they announce the universal dh right before i have to hit and I was thinking to myself, is it really possible that they could make an announcement right before the first pitch of Yankees Jays, which was the first pitch of the season? Is it possible that we could do that so I could get my weight to see correct? No, nah, it didn't happen. So Marlins lost their first game at Lone Depot Park. And the big news coming out of Miami is big news. Sixto Sanchez is top 15 prospect in all of baseball, potential rookie of the year. They had him at the alternate site, which is where players go who are not on the active roster, but it's like they're staying uh, ready like last year in case of COVID or in case of call-up because the minor league season hasn't started. And Sixto Sanchez was pulled from the game that he was pitching, a simulated game, with shoulder discomfort. An absolute nightmare for Marlins executives, for any team's executives, when your best pitcher, your best young pitcher, your top prospect has shoulder discomfort. It's the two words I didn't like to hear. I didn't like elbow discomfort or forearm discomfort, but shoulder discomfort had a different ring to it because my belief always was Tommy John is the worst case scenario. You miss 12 months, you miss 14 months, but you're going to come back and it's going to be okay. Generally speaking, that was how I would explain Tommy John to myself, how I'd rationalize it to myself. Shoulder discomfort is something entirely different and that it can be hard to come back, and some players can't come back at all. So we are going to watch what happened with Sixto Sanchez because shoulder discomfort for him, not a good sign. Well, we picked some. We picked a baseball game yesterday for our nothing personal pick of the day, which is sort of good, right? We wanted to pick a game. I don't understand why picking the Dodgers over the Rockies was an issue. You had Kershaw going against Marquez. The Dodgers are supposed to win 103 and a half games. That's the over-under. The Rockies are supposed to lose 100 games. That's their over-under. And I forgot the fact that in baseball, anything can happen on any given day. So the prohibitive favorite Dodgers lost. We are now 41 and 28. Why did they lose? Bad defense. Not clutch offense. Bad pitching by Clayton Kershaw a base running mistake that you don't see too often. Did everyone know the rule? Did, did, did anyone, Coca, did you watch the Clay Bellinger home run in that game by chance? Probably not, right? I called him Clay Bellinger and he did not hit a home run yesterday. I believe Clay is the father and I make that mistake every year on nothing personal. His name is Cody Bellinger, of course. Cody Bellinger hit a home run. Justin Turner was on base. Justin Turner thought the ball was caught. Justin Turner had circled second because he had started at first base. And then he thought the ball was caught, so he had to go back to first. When you go back to a base, 
You have to touch every base you've touched. You have to gain control of every base you have passed. So he hits second base on his way back to first base, thinking the ball had been caught. Meanwhile, Cody Bellinger thought the ball was a home run. So he's running. He touches first base. Then he's headed to second base in his home run trot, thinking he's getting ready to be an MVP caliber player again. And Justin Turner all of a sudden is running past him the other way. That means Cody Bellinger had passed Justin Turner. Little known rule there. You can't pass the runner in front of you. Do you know what happens when you do that? You're out. So Cody Bellinger was called out on a home run that he hit because he thought that it was a home run, but the runner thought that the ball was caught. So Justin Turner runs back to first base. Cody Bellinger is running to second base. They don't even look at each other. Cody Bellinger sort of points at him and says, what the hell are you doing? Doing Justin Turner is scurrying back so he doesn't get doubled off first base on a great catch by the left fielder, which of course wasn't a great catch. It was a home run. The umpires look at each other. The managers look at each other. Little known rule. Here's what happened. Cody Bellinger, you're out. Justin Turner retouches first base. The umpires rule it a home run, which it was. Justin Turner gets to circle the bases and score. Cody Bellinger gets a run batted in and gets credit for, wait for it, a single. A run scoring single. That's the rule. I think they got to look at that rule. Come on, Theo. You're on the committee now. You're making every decision in baseball. I don't like that rule. Cody Bellinger lost a home run, got a run scoring single because Justin Turner didn't realize whether it was a home run or not because he got duked. Is that the word? It's not duped. There's another word for it, Coca. I want to say deked, but I don't know if that's it either. Duped? It would, no, it's not a dupe. Is it, what's the thing when you are, uh, um, when you're in a, you get deked, like when, when you're throwing to second base? Ah, whatever. Juked, that could be it. I don't think it is, Coca. All right, pick of the day today is very simple. The pick of the day is going to be the Dodgers again. Trevor Bauer debuts for the Dodgers. They're not losing two in a row to the Rockies. Double up your wager because we are not losing today. Dodgers, pick of the day after the Dodgers lost the pick of the day. All right, Coca. We had a lot of sports fans thinking that they wanted to understand our legal system. You know what I want? So you want to talk to Samson. That's when you get on Twitter. It's David P. Samson. Get into my direct mentions. Ask a question. They're open. They're public. I'll get to as many as I can. Sometimes I'll do it on Twitter. Sometimes I'll do it on the show. Thank you. And here's the question. I want to get right to it. What do you think will happen with the NCAA Supreme Court case? And can you please explain it as though we are not all lawyers? Thank you for asking that question because everyone read all the articles, I hope, about what happened in the NCAA case. Everyone was under the impression that there was going to be some sort of landmark decision by the Supreme Court about whether or not NCAA players should get paid or will get paid to be NCAA players. Not about name image likeness. That's not what the Supreme Court case was about. So I want to explain a few things that happened. When a case is heard by the Supreme Court, there are often oral arguments there. I think they were via Zoom this time, but it is really quite an honor for an attorney to get to argue a case before the Supreme Court. You walk in. When I was in law school, we got to go visit the Supreme Court and I got to watch an argument. And uh, it's pretty fascinating, actually. 
So you, the nine Supreme Court justices sit in a row and they ask questions of lawyers about a case that is being decided by the Supreme Court. What oral arguments are not is the final day where a decision is made on the case. So there is no decision by the Supreme Court in the NCA case. And here's what the case was about. It was not about whether players are going to get paid. The Supreme Court is not going to issue a decision. Yes, players can get paid. They need to get paid $25 an hour, 300 bucks a game, or $2 million a year. No. The case before the Supreme Court is whether or not the NCAA is in violation of antitrust laws, which means when you do not have to follow antitrust laws, like baseball has an antitrust exemption, which means they are exempt from following the antitrust laws. Antitrust informs people how you can treat other people. And we're not talking about person to person. We're talking about in a company situation, how companies can act toward other companies, toward consumers. And the question before the Supreme Court right now, and the way you get to the Supreme Court is when there's a lower court that has heard a case, made a decision, and the loser has appealed for the Supreme Court to make a ruling. The Supreme Court also, excuse me one second. The Supreme Court also hears cases where two sets of courts below them have looked at the same problem and decided it in exactly opposite ways. Because the Supreme Court is in charge of something called precedent. Precedent is something that other courts use when making decisions on similar subjects. Oh, look, you have this dispute. The Supreme Court has already ruled in this dispute, and this has to be the answer. Therefore, this is the answer to that dispute. So that there's se- that's how the Supreme Court can basically hear cases. I don't know if you know this. The Supreme Court doesn't just hear appeals. Here's a little nugget for you on a random Friday morning. The Supreme Court actually hears cases between states. They're the only court. It's called the court of original jurisdiction. Jurisdiction is when you decide, and it's really by law, where your case is going to be heard and by who, by which court. That's called jurisdiction. Where will the case be? The Supreme Court has original jurisdiction in one area only when the state of Florida sues the state of New York for some reason, or the state of Massachusetts sues the state of California. When two states sue each other, you go right to the Supreme Court and that's it. I don't know why you, do you like that little nugget, Coca? Do you care about that little nugget? Anyway, so lawyers for the NCAA get up and what they argue is they cannot be told what to do with players in terms of pay because if they are and it's done in a disorganized fashion there is a chance that the entire ncaa model will fall apart and if the ncaa model falls apart that will have a deleterious impact on all students not just of the big programs in the big schools but students who are athletes in smaller schools or smaller less revenue important teams in bigger schools or students who actually don't play sports at all. So stay out of it. 
and let us continue to work with the NCAA players and the Collegiate Players Association. Let us continue to get a legislative result, which is when you go to Congress and tell them to pass laws that will help inform you how to act. But don't you act as a legal judicial branch and tell us that we're in violation of any sort of antitrust rules and then make us quickly put together a program which will all of a sudden start paying players because it will lead to unintended consequences. That's sort of the general rule of the case. Very general, but that's it. So the lawyer arguing for the NCAA gets up and it was a nightmare. And the way you define a nightmare in the Supreme Court is when justices who are conservative, appointed by Republicans, justices who are liberal, appointed by Democrats, because that's how you become a Supreme Court justice. You get appointed by a president. You then get confirmed by the Senate. When every justice is speaking up at an oral argument and saying to the NCAA, uh, I don't really think it's fair what you guys do, and it's not right for the players, and I also believe that you are in complete violation, acting like a complete monopoly, and we don't really like the sound of this. And all of a sudden, the NCAA panicked, and they said, oh, God, we're going to lose. What do we do? And then someone called up the lawyer for the NCAA, who was the former solicitor general, I think, who was doing the oral argument and said, you know that oral arguments and all the articles you may have read about how the NCAA got hammered during the oral arguments, guess what? They have nothing to do with the outcome of the case. The case does not get decided by oral arguments. I would argue to you that 95% of Supreme Court cases are decided having nothing to do with oral arguments, but with the actual briefs that are filed by both sides. A brief is a document. It's like a term paper that you write, a research paper that you write, that you submit to the court that says, here's why I should win. It's like going to arbitration with a player. You have a document that says, here's why we should pay the player this amount, and the player has the same document, and he says, here's why I should get paid more. In the Supreme Court, you submit a brief. A brief is a written statement that has previous cases, it has precedents, it has explanations, statements of fact, and what it says is, here's why, here's why we should win. That is how Supreme Court justices decide how they're going to vote on a case. You could walk into an oral argument. You could be flop sweating like Aaron Brooks in broadcast news. You could stumble, bumble, and stutter and you could say nothing at all, and it wouldn't change the possibility of the outcome of the case. So I would just like to tell everyone out there who assumes that it's all said and done that it's not. So I'm gonna give you a wait to see about this Supreme Court case, and I'm gonna tell you that I think the NCA will prevail. And the reason I think the NCA will prevail, and it's not gonna happen for much later, it's gonna be months. April, May, June, something like that. Wait a minute, we are in April. May, June, July is when the Supreme Court will decide. And then they release an opinion. And there's an opinion written by the majority, uh, by a Supreme Court justice who is in the majority. And then there's something called a dissenting opinion, which is written by a judge, a justice in the minority who is on the losing side. Let's say the vote is six to three or five to four or seven to two. Often one of the two dissenting justices will write an opinion just so the word is out there 
about why that justice disagreed with the Supreme Court ruling. And the reason I think the NCAA is going to prevail, and this is not a popular take, but I really do believe it's going to happen, is that the Supreme Court is hesitant to get involved in something like this when there can be a legislative result. A legislative result is when the Congress, the House and the Senate, federally get together and they make a law. It is always preferable by the judicial branch to have the legislative branch take care of issues because their view is the legislative branch are people who are voted in by the people who are making laws that the Supreme Court then has to either decide whether they're constitutional or decide whether or not um, they are relevant to the case in front of them. But it is always better to have a law on the books. So the legislative branch went public yesterday. And the legislative branch, led by Cory Booker, the senator from New Jersey, who is clearly on the side of the players in this case, said, you think we're going to have a legislative result here? We may. And guess what, NCAA? If we do, it's going to be a real problem for you. So we'll see what happens there. But it was interesting to see the NCAA in front of the Supreme Court and interesting to see people like me who love sports and law see how they intersect. All right. We are going to go to break right now. We have a movie we are going to review, a documentary, and we are going to talk about uh, Tom Werner later in the show coming up after the break as well. Tom Werner, the owner of the Boston Red Sox, had some comments in an article released today that shocked me to the point of not silence. We will be right back. The 82-game preseason is in the books, and it's finally time for the real season. Don't miss out on any of the NBA playoff action at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. From the play-in tournament through the finals, DraftKings Sportsbook has you covered with same-game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more. From what you've seen so far, do you think they'll be a first-time winner of the NBA championship? If the Pacers, Clippers, Suns, Magic, Pelicans, or T-Wolves win, you win at plus 650. That's six teams to root for, six chances to win. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SAMSON. New customers bet $5 and get $200 in bonus bets instantly. That's code SAMSON, only on DraftKings. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. That's 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino Resort in Kansas, 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Quentin, Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.co slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Welcome back to Nothing Personal. Thank you very much for downloading, following, subscribing. We had a record-breaking March. We are now in April. Today is April uh, 2nd. And let's keep going. Rate, review, get on Apple. Rate, review, wherever you listen to your podcast. Download, follow, tell your friends. We review a movie every day. We watch a movie every day. A documentary came out about the college admissions scandal on Netflix. 
If you don't know what the college admissions scandal is, then I think you've been living under a bit of a rock. The college admissions scandal is when there were movie stars and regular not movie stars who were trying to get their kids into college and basically made up what their kids had done, pretending their kids were athletes. They would then get a advisor, a quote unquote college advisor, a guy named Rick Singer, except I don't know that it's Rick Singer, Coca. Why is Rick Singer in my mind? It may be Bill Singer, although Bill Singer may be someone in baseball. And it may not be Singer at all. I'm having a Friday moment. What a week. Anyway, here's what Lori Laughlin and Felicity Huffman did general, in general terms. They wanted to get their kids into school, so they pay money to a man who puts a application together, which gets the student into school. The problem is the application is based on a lie because the Rick Singer guy would say, hey, guess what? Your daughter is now a water polo player. Your daughter is now a coxswain. Your daughter is now a star soccer player. Then he would go to the school and he would say to the soccer player, to the soccer coach or to the water polo coach or to the sailing coach, hey, I've got a student who's going to be on your sailing team. Well, does he sail? Of course he doesn't sail. He doesn't even live near water. But I'm going to give you $100,000. You're going to take the $100,000. And then you're going to go to your athletic director. And you're going to say, I've got a new recruit for sailing. Then the athletic director is going to go to the admissions office and say, hey, we got to get this person into USC or into Stanford or into Yale, wherever. Well, that doesn't sound very fair, does it? That's what the college admissions scandal is. And then it's worse. The rest of the college admission scandal is when Rick Singer would arrange for students who don't do well in the SATs or ACTs, which are standardized tests, which, by the way, post-COVID are not even required by schools anymore. And he would have proctors take the test for the kids and get them a almost perfect score. Yeah, it didn't go well. So a movie came out about it. It is a documentary directed by and starring Matthew Modine. So how could a documentary star an actor? Matthew Modine is an actor. If you've never heard of him, you should go watch Birdie with Nicolas Cage. Old movie, but a great movie. It's sort of a documentary where they act out certain scenes based on actual transcripts that were released in court. So there was nothing to write. There was no script because everything that was said in the movie was actually said. But then they intersperse real video and real footage. And it's a pretty fascinating documentary. It is called Operation Varsity Blues. I think it's worth checking out. It really gives everybody a bad name. Uh, it is so competitive to get into school. It is so difficult to put a student body together. I've been lucky enough to be involved in, in universities and, and, and how they're run. And I can tell you we had that Samson sit down with Jonathan Holloway. Uh, the president of Rutgers, in the admissions situation at these schools, it is so uber competitive. So many students are applying for so few positions and that they try to find ways to differentiate. They try to build a student body the same way Survivor builds a cast when they're casting or all of your reality shows build a cast. That's what they're doing. They're trying to put together a group of people that have the best chance to be as representative of, as possible of the audience, as representative as possible so that they can be looked at as a top school or a top show. Operation Varsity Blues. All right, I got to close the weekend with this, Coca, because it's 
it's it's almost too much. You've heard me talk about John Henry and Tom Werner a lot on this show. They're the owners of the Boston Red Sox. They're the owners of Liverpool. They do it through a holding company called Fenway Sports Group. We did an entire segment, I don't know, maybe in a month ago, when LeBron James became a part owner. It was a big deal, remember? LeBron James, new owner of the Boston Red Sox. And I explained to you all that, in fact, LeBron James is not an owner of the Red Sox. He's an owner of the entity that owns the Red Sox. So by definition, he does sort of own the Red Sox, but he's not a direct owner of the Red Sox. He's a direct owner of something called Fenway Sports Group, and Fenway Sports Group owns the Red Sox. And I told you back when this story came out that this was not an example of John Henry and Tom Werner trying to get money from LeBron James, because that same day, they got three quarters of a billion dollars from a hedge fund. This was all about optics. And the Red Sox didn't announce that. The Red Sox, Fenway Sports Group, John Henry and Tom Warner announced how thrilled they were to have LeBron James and Maverick Carter as part of the group owning Fenway Sports Group. They had owned Liverpool for a bit. They actually just traded in. I don't think LeBron James wrote a check for a dollar. He just used his Liverpool shares, which were worth a ton of money, and made that a small investment in Fenway Sports Group. So everything's fine, right? It's up to me at Nothing Personal to tell you that it was very strategic to bring in LeBron James. There was a particular reason why they did it, but there was no way the Red Sox were ever going to admit that. In the press conference announcing it, they weren't going to admit that the fact that LeBron James is African-American, the fact that he's so far out in front of these social issues and how important it is that the Red Sox do not appear as white as they are, It was critical for the Red Sox and for Werner and for Fenway Sports Group to to have diversity. That's 2021. And I said to you, even if that's the reason, I'm okay with it because progress has to start somewhere. I talked to you about Redbird Capital, the company that put $750 million into Fenway Sports Group, and I showed you on their website how white they were at the top, but how they're now trying to get more people of color in at the associate level of their hedge fund. And I wasn't critical of Redbird Capital either because you've got to start somewhere. Fine. But today, Tom Werner was honest with you. Tom Werner gave an interview. Do you remember the Samson sit down we did with, uh, was it Joe Varden? Coca, is that who it was, who, who writes for The Athletic? And he was in the NBA bubble. I don't know if you remember that. Anyway, we did an episode with him. He came out with an article just today, and it was all quotes from Tom Warner. And I want to give you the quotes, and then I want to ask you to try to understand what in the heck is going on here. Tom Warner said, we want to feel that the Red Sox are an inclusive place where everybody feels welcome. And while that may seem like an obvious notion today, the Red Sox have a very complicated history when it comes to race relations. Let me stop you there, Tom. The history of the Red Sox is not very complicated at all. The history of the Red Sox is that it is a completely racist organization. The previous owner was a guy named Yawkey, 
who didn't even allow integration with the Red Sox, didn't even have a black player until so long after there was integration in baseball. He was a complete racist, complete. So much so that Yawkey Way in front of Fenway Park was renamed by John Henry and Tom Warner. So much so that Yawkey's pretty much been erased in terms of the history of the Red Sox. How about the fan base in Boston? It's famous for racial epithets that are thrown at players. Absolute prejudice against black people. I don't understand why you would ever say that it's complicated. It's actually quite simple. He then said, we work hard to create a more diverse and inclusive organization from top to bottom. And he said, and here comes one of the first of three money quotes. It's, it's too good. I'm excited that LeBron James and Maverick Carter are owners of the Red Sox because this helps provide better representation of baseball to our fans. I'm trying to picture racist fans in Boston saying, you know what? I'm not racist anymore. I'm absolutely tolerant of every person of color because LeBron James, my beloved LeBron James, is an owner of the Red Sox. And then I'm picturing a black fan in Boston, not stepping into his or her shoes, because I can't, but picturing a black fan, imagining subject to systemic racism in Boston, saying, oh my God, everything's good now. LeBron James is an owner of the Red Sox, and I can really appreciate that. I understand what it is to be a billionaire like LeBron James and to be an owner of the Red Sox. And now when I walk down the street, no one in Boston stares at me. No one thinks that I'm going to mug them. Everyone's fine now. I don't think you can fix systemic racism by having LeBron James as an owner of Fenway Sports Group. I think that you want to believe that's what you're doing, but you certainly should not be saying it. But then he kept going. He said, I will be surprised if LeBron and Maverick don't weigh in on management decisions of the Red Sox and Liverpool. I would welcome their thoughts. Can you picture LeBron James calling up Tom Werner, calling up Chaim Bloom? Hey, Chaim, I got to tell you, I'm not too pleased with Kike Hernandez and the fact that you gave him 14 million over two. I got a way better idea for a player that you should be signing. And by the way, how could you not do a hit and run in the third inning when we were down two runs with a man on first? What in the hell was Cora thinking? Really? That's what LeBron James is going to do? Maybe what Tom Warner meant by management decisions is they're going to call up LeBron and say, hey, LeBron, uh, we want a better deal with Nike, and we'd like you to go to all of your corporate sponsors and all of the people you do business with. And could you do us a favor? I know you're now a Pepsi guy, and we're a Coke stadium, but if we can get rid of Coke, is there any way you could have Pepsi come in for 20 million bucks a year? That would be amazing. Is that LeBron being weighed in or his viewpoint being looked at as important to run the Red Sox? Here's a better one. Bring, bring. Bring, bring. Um, hello? Um, yes. Hi, it's me. Um, I am the, uh, I'm, I'm in the pitch right now in Liverpool. I got, a, I got a small issue here in Liverpool. 
I don't believe that the configuration and the players we have, they're in the right place. We need to drop a different play. Can you help with that? No. What he can help in Liverpool with is exactly what he can do in the United States is he can bring to bear some of the relationships he has in the corporate world. So why would you say, Tom, that you'd be surprised if they don't weigh in? You brought him in purposefully. You are totally using LeBron the way LeBron is using you. LeBron is using you for your money, Tom. And the fact that you've got billions of dollars in investments in Fenway Sports Group because he wants to be the principal owner of an NBA team. And then Tom Werner says, you know, we may want to buy an NBA team. Guess what will happen with Fenway Sports Group? They're going to buy an NBA team. And guess what LeBron is going to be? The controlling owner of the NBA team. He went on to say they have a collaborative relationship. I would actually say their wisdom and their experience is going to be hugely helpful to us going forward. Hugely helpful. He actually even acknowledged, even acknowledged that they want an NBA or NHL team at Fenway Sports Group. Of course they do, because that is why they brought in the $750 million. They're totally using LeBron, and LeBron is totally using them. That makes it mutually beneficial, I guess. LeBron James. Isn't he the one who every Celtics fan hates because of the rivalry? I don't know. When, when he was with the Heat for four years, it was major, his rivalry with the Celtics. Now he's on the Lakers. Obviously, the Lakers and Celtics don't get along. It's just very strange to me. Anyway, it's going to happen. LeBron James is going to get an NBA team you're going to see. So I have one word of advice for uh, owners out there and for players and for anybody. When you are making a business move and you are doing it solely for business reasons, which is well within your right, whether it means, and I'm a consequentialist, as you guys know from listening to Nothing Personal for now, I don't know, what are we at, Coca? 343 episodes. You know very well as a consequentialist what I mean. And that is anything that's in the best interest of your business and that can have a nice result tangentially that can be better for the community, that can be better for society, that can lead to better social change, that can end racism, can end all of the things that are bad about our society, I'm all in. But when you're too obvious about it, it takes away the benefit that you're trying to gather. And by Tom Werner giving this interview, while he thought he may have been helping the truth is he wasn't because there's one thing that happens. And I spent a lot of time actually talking to Mike Hill about this president of baseball operations, former of the Marlins worked with him for years. We were talking about the rules in baseball and the rules in football, especially the Selig rule, the Rooney rule where they want to give draft choices, take draft choices away, add draft choices to make sure minority candidates are part of ownership or part of coaching ranks, et cetera. And Mike Hill's comment to me, and it was the comment of many people with whom I spoke, said, we want people to get jobs, and we want black people to get jobs, and we want black people to be owners, we want black people to rise to the top of organizations, because they've earned that right. We want them to have the opportunity to earn the right. We don't want handouts. We want opportunity. It's about opportunity. So when you bring in LeBron James, you're not giving LeBron James opportunity to be an NBA owner. He's got the opportunity without you. You're bringing him in for the sole purpose of business. P. 
period. It's nothing personal. <laughs>